0: How many of you have ever had an experience in your life that changed the course of your direction? An experience in your life that changed the course of your direction? That's what we're going to talk about today in reference to, yes, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. But I think back in to my life and certain junctures and things that could have happened here or there and and what did transpire. Maybe it was a culmination of several events. It changes the trajectory of your life, or at least the disposition of how you think. I remember one of uh, the events that happened when I was a freshman in college. I'd come home to work uh, on our grain farm that day, and uh, we had a lot of the big equipment, and we were um, filling up uh, some tanks and a tractor that was alongside the road, and I had pulled up the fueling truck, if you will, to refuel with the fertilizer. And in a little bit, we heard a crash like somebody hit our mirror. I turned my head, as did my brothers, and we heard a car screeching to a halt. And while it was screeching to a halt, we also saw a body flying through the air that landed in the ditch and began to flop. It was a 12-year-old boy from the house across the road One of our rental houses. And he never saw the car and was distracted and so was the car. And that young boy died. (laughs) There as his parents came out crying and screaming over his body. We shut down the farm operation for several days. It was that very year also that I had the opportunity to go to Israel with a group of about 50 bikers. Not the Harleys, bicycles. <laughs> we had the chance to tour around Israel, and I remember some of the defining moments there, including a defining moment on top of Masada, which was one of the last, the last strong uh, hold, the holdout for the Jewish people before the Romans just completely destroyed them in the year 70 A.D. And I remember God touching my life at different stops there, including the stop there at Masada. I remember coming back that next year in a defining moment of a youth ministry that had been broken and crumbled and I was trying to hold together while we were between youth pastors and the new youth pastor guy came and that gro- broken group of about 30 kids mushroomed to 130 some kids within a year and revival broke out not only in the youth group it started to impact the whole church. There was a season of time in my life when I was a freshman, sophomore in college that changed the trajectory of my life lives matter this life is brief you never know what day could be your last that boy did not know neither did his parents the reality that Jesus really was somebody who walked on this earth it wasn't make believe to visit the places, yes, that are always the traditional sites to visit in Israel, but to show up at the Sea of Galilee and be riding my bike down with some of my friends into sort of the fish bowl of which the Sea of Galilee is. And going, this is where the Lord Jesus Christ ministered and served around Galilee. No kidding. Where he called the fishermen off of the seas and he began the whole movement as a part of and that that movement is still alive today and can take young people's lives and change and transform them from people who are just hanging out having a good time at school with their friends to being a mobilized group of young people on mission to serve God a mission that lasts through all the years that I look back on those youth ministry days and I say god you are alive In fact, that very movement, that very youth pastor is the guy who's heading up the ministry that my son, who we prayed for along with others last week for short-term missions, he went to be with this week because he started a prayer church ministry called Forge. And they're crafting a 58-day experience for 22 young adults that I believe will change their life and I'm praying will change even my own son's life in new and incredible ways. Have you come through an experience in your life that has changed the trajectory and the course of where you're headed? We can look back and we can identify whether it's an event or a season of time like it was in my freshman and sophomore years when I made a decision to to step out and serve God and go into vocational ministry. Maybe you have history of that experience. Maybe you're in the middle of that experience right now. Maybe you're like, duh, when's mine coming? It could be right around the corner. We never know what a day holds. My landlord's wife this last week was diagnosed with advanced liver cancer. He was baptized in this very church when it started. Full of life, senior in high school, junior in high school, I believe, sophomore. You never know what a week holds. The Apostle Paul was that way. He was named Saul of Tarsus, and Saul of Tarsus was a bad dude. In fact, as we started to watch this AD series that's on Sunday night in conjunction with this series, Life AD, that we're in here on Sunday morning, I've been a little bothered the last couple of weeks by how Paul has been depicted because he's a bad dude. And I thought to myself, why am I bothered by how they're depicting Saul of Tarsus or Paul with the A.D. series? And part of it is because I don't think of Paul in the terms in which he was pre-conversion. He was a religious zealot, a Pharisee. He had all the credentials. He was a Jew who had Roman citizenship through his family. You... Could not touch his resume. And he was zealous for God. To the point of overseeing Stephen's murder. To the point of rallying all kinds of people together of the Jewish nation at that time to squash out this Jesus of Nazareth movement. He was a bad dude. But God, you know what he's in the business of doing? He's in the business of taking bad dudes and changing them. Bad guys and changing them. Because he's in the transformation business. Have you had an experience in your life that's changed the trajectory of who you are? You may say, well, Carrie, I'm not a bad dude. I'm not a bad person. Well, that may be true, as you would define it. But here was Paul. He was a religious person. He was in church more than you're in church. What was wrong with him is because he did not know who Jesus Christ was on a personal basis. And the experience that changes and transforms your life is when the person of Jesus Christ is enters into your world, places claims on your life, and you do as Paul did, as we're going to look at, surrender and begin to follow after him. Let's take a look at the scriptures. We're in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in a city called Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem let me pause right there and begin to point out a few things with the scripture text of which we're talking about this story today he was breathing out murderous threats The original language there actually says he was breathing in rather than breathing out. But that's sort of a hard thing for us to to depict and understand. But he was breathing out these murderous threats, or the King James Version says he was breathing out threats and slaughter. But the idea of breathing in was this was his environment, this was his culture. He was such a zealot for the purity of Judaism and the God as they knew him then that he would go to the point of seeing people, overseeing people and voting for people to be extinguished in life. That's who he was. And he was continuing on that path. He went to the high priest. He asked them for letters to go to a place in Damascus. Why? Because he wanted to find the people in Damascus who belonged to the way. Now, this whole aspect of who he was He actually describes later on in life, and it sort of gives a little bit fuller of a picture. About 25 years later, in Acts 26, before King Agrippa, he was giving a defense because he was in trouble at that time because of his faith in Christ. He says this in Acts 26, verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blasphemy. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. When you have an experience that changes your life that Paul did, it's embedded within you. And you carry it with you for years. And here he is articulating the before Jesus dimensions of his life. This is who I was before Christ, King Agrippa. This was the kind of bad dude that I was. We come back to what it says then in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9 it says... That he made his way to Damascus, which was one of those foreign cities, right? That he just had described 25 years later. So that he found any there who belonged to the way. Let's pull that section out there a little bit. The Christians at that time were not yet called Christians. The Christians were first called Christians. And Antioch, which was north of them, became a base of operations, gave reference to that last week as the gospel began to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But at that time, they were known as the people of the way. Now, a lot of times in our life, we get branded by our enemies. You ever had a name that's got stuck on you when you're in high school because of an enemy and then they keep using that name? Or maybe somebody else doesn't care for you much. They sort of define who you are and and stick a name on you. Well, this name was stuck on the people who were following Jesus going like, they're just people of the way. Those people belong to the way. Well, what was the way? Well, Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. It was known that they were a follower of Jesus. But there was something different about these people. They were not self-centered. They were not into self-aggrandizement. They weren't, they weren't like other people. Even of the religious stripe. These people loved people. They cared for people. They had mercy flowing from them and acts of justice and kindness. And, and they gave to one another as each other had needs, as we looked at. And Acts is like, well, was this group of people? Look at them. That's just so, they're just so different. They're, they're a part of the way. This different way refers to a lifestyle and a way of being. Now, why is that important for us? I think it's important, especially in light of watching AD sometimes on Sunday nights these evenings, because the people of Jesus Christ should never be depicted as people who uh, were fearful that they were were bunkered in, claustrophobic unto themselves, a little subgroup. They were a community of lovers and encouragers, giving life and hope. People were attracted to the people of the way. That's why the numbers were, were quickly growing. Thousands upon thousands of people in those days were becoming people who were followers of the way. They weren't giving up on their Jewish faith. They saw the culmination of their Jewish faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And then Jesus as the Messiah through the power of the Holy Spirit, like we've talked about the day of Pentecost, comes and dwells within them. And they begin living in a different kind of way. You know, this weekend is actually... The weekend references of the weekend of Pentecost. You know why? Because it's been 40 days since Easter. Now, as you're into the AD series, you're like, we're really down the road a lot further than that. But can you think in terms of when Easter was, what you were doing there? I was thinking about it driving to church today uh, because my mom and, and my sister and some family members were here. And I go, wow, it was, it was 40 days ago. So between then and this time here, Jesus had appeared to people off and on. And this whole movement, the Christian way, had really taken off. Paul did not like people of the way. And I think part of the reason why is not just because they were uh, proclaiming this Jesus as Messiah, but he was bothered by the change that had happened to them and the kinds of people that they were because he knew in his own life, he was not that kind of person. He tried to justify his zealotness. But he knew inside that he was amiss. Now, the third thing in this is the aspect of where was Damascus. You see this movement that had broken out in Jerusalem, which is identified by the yellow star there, had begun to move its way, as we looked at last week on Great Commission Sunday. It begun to move its way through Samaria, from Judea into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That Damascus was the um, Big city in uh, Syria at the time. Now, isn't it interesting when you look at this map, the reason I put this particular map up here is because we see this map on the news almost every night, don't we? Same place. Same story. Division, brokenness, strife, evil, hardship. And in this map, we see that God had a purpose for the Christian way to be moving its way out into the way outer regions. Damascus, 160 miles from Jerusalem. There was a group of Christians there. Now, Damascus today, it's the capital of Syria. Uh, It's about two and a half million people today in the metropolitan area of Damascus. Friends, that's a lot of people. Back then, it was about 150,000, it was believed, people were in Damascus. It was a prominent major city back then. In fact, Damascus goes back 2,000 years B.C. It had been a long-established, it was, a, it was a, an entrepreneurial place, a very a big metropolitan kind of environment. This was a big, significant base of operations. And the outbreak of the way was hitting the mark in Damascus. It's believed that maybe there were at least 20,000 Jews at the time out of the 150,000 that were in Damascus. Why do we know that? Because shortly after this period of time, there were 20,000 Jews that were slaughtered and killed. So we know there had to be that many. And so it would make every bit of sense that maybe there were some from Damascus or the disciples had begun moving in that direction, that the, the outbreak of the way was happening there and Saul of Tarsus knew about this. And he says, we've got to stop it. And so he leaves Jerusalem with papers in hands to be able to go to Damascus and do something about that situation. And that situation was to put a stop to the way. But along the way, to take care of the people of the way, God had his way. And so we find this in Acts chapter 9. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now it's believed there was actually a large entourage with him because if he was going to Damascus to take a lot of the the Christian people of this Jewish Number back to Jerusalem to put on trial, he would need people to help him take him back. So he probably had a large entourage with him. It was a six-day journey by caravan. And so he is like on the precipice of going into Damascus, and God plays his hand in his chosen subject of Saul of Tarsus. And we have what's referred to as the Damascus Road experience. In fact, the phrase is still used today. I had a Damascus Road experience. What does that mean? Well, it means that you have been halted by God. You have been enlightened. And something has changed and transformed you. Now, interesting, again, I want to go back to Acts 26. Sort of helps fill in some of the pieces and some of the perspective of the Apostle Paul. Twenty-some years later, he's before King Agrippa. And this is what he says in Acts 26. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Let's stop right there for a second. Can you imagine that phrase? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It rung in his ears for years, his whole life. Now here, the phrase is added. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Do any of you know what a goat is? Well, if you were part of an agricultural environment and you had oxen that you were trying to get to, you know, to plow a field and they were pulling a plow behind it. Or maybe they were just pulling some type of cargo uh, cart and they were not wanting to get moving. You would have this long stick with a point on the end of it and you would goad them in the leg to say, get going. In fact, it's a word that's still used today and an ox, any four legged animal that's. Pricked like that would have a tendency to kick back and say, no, dig in the hills. But after you kept getting poked, after a while, the animal would go, now oh, this is useless, I might as well give into to it and get on with my job. And so they would use goads. To prick and to prod and to keep people, to keep the animals moving forward. And so Paul is saying that it was spoken to him here by Jesus himself. Using says, why are you continuing to kick against the goat? It is me, Saul. Why are you pushing back against me? Any of you ever been goaded by God? <laughs> Any of you being goaded by God right now? You're kicking back against something you know he's called you to do? Some change in your life. Maybe something you're to contribute to His work in the kingdom of God or to help somebody out. And you're just resisting. No, God, not me. Or no, I'm not going to surrender in that way. That area of my life is for me. It's mine. You don't need that area too. And the Lord God Himself just goads you a little bit. And you actually think He's going to stop goading you. (laughs) Why do you keep kicking back against the goad? That's painful. It hurts. You see, Saul, in this moment of his conversion, if you will, he did have a choice. He did not have to say, oh, my goodness, it's Jesus. He really is alive. Jesus was God. Jesus is the Messiah. All that I knew to be true. And you need to know this. Paul had been around the Christians, the people the way enough. He understood the gospel to the nth degree. Because it had been spoken into his life. Do you remember Stephen? He's standing beside Stephen, right, with Stephen Stone. It says of Stephen that he's full of wisdom and Holy Spirit and faith, those kinds of things. And it said that nothing, nobody could refute Stephen in his articulation of the things of God's Word and who God was. Not even someone as brilliant as Paul so Saul of Tarsus stepped back. He knows everything that's been spoken. He knows what the gospel is. He knows who Jesus Christ is, uh, was claimed to be. He knows about the eyewitness sightings of Jesus' of the resurrection. He could have chosen in that moment to not surrender, but to kick back against the goads and continue to be defiant. But praise God, that revelation, that Damascus Road experience It not only changed Saul of Tarsus' life and got a new name with the word Apostle Paul, it's changed your life and mine because God had a purpose for this man. And that purpose we'll look at as he references where and what he wants him to do. Acts 26, it continues on, and this again, with King Agrippa a number of years later, he told the king, Then I ask, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. By the way, I'm so thankful that Jesus was very clear in that moment. That way we don't sit 2,000 years later and go, I don't know, it could have been Jesus, maybe not, maybe it was an angel. No, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the very same Jesus that appeared to the disciples in the upper room. The very same Jesus that appeared to the men that were walking on the road to Emmaus and the other sightings that were on that period of 40 years. It was that Jesus. This is just another one of his appearances. In fact, Paul referenced many years later in, in some of his writings, especially to the church at Corinth, that he was the one who was the least of the disciples, but that he too had seen Jesus. Because you could not be described as an apostle unless you had had eyewitness to Jesus. So when they picked the people who were the apostles, did you see Jesus? Yes, I walked with Jesus. I saw Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus appeared to Paul. And he proclaimed it through his years. Now get up, he said, and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show to you. Verse 17, Acts 26. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You think Jesus had a purpose in his mind for Paul? looked pretty clear to me with what that fuller statement is that he spoke. Let me just share with you this morning, you may not believe this to be true, but I do because God is a very personal God. He sent his own son, Jesus, to walk among us, to live perfectly, die on a cross, be raised from the grave, send to heaven, send his spirit back so he could dwell within each of us individually. God is a personal God and God has a plan for your life as surely as he had a plan for Paul's life now you may say that's great could he just like appear to me and articulate those words to me (laughs) whatever it is right for whatever reason as God moves through he has his own way of speaking through his spirit this is a unique example of when he visibly appeared to Paul because he had chosen Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles and to all the people go back to Acts 9. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, "Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul." For he is praying in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Somehow those who in the entourage, they got Paul up, moved him into Damascus. He is blinded as he's blinded there for three days. God continues his hand and work and he picks out a man by the name of Ananias. And he tells him to go to Judas on Straight Street. Isn't it interesting? I mean, Judas betrayed Jesus. Ananias was one the first person who uh, tried to deceive the Holy Spirit. Both those names are like not-so-good names in Scripture. And here he picks someone by the name of Judas, someone by the name of Ananias. Just a little sidebar there. And he says, you know, it's not what your name is. It's what you do. That's what's wrong. He pulls him back around and he calls Ananias to move forward. And... So he goes in verse 13, Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. I don't know about you, but there are certain people I wouldn't want to have to be around that I hear of in the news today. Saul of Tarsus was in the news. And he was in the news as a bad dude, and he was in the news as he's coming to get you. All right, he's going to persecute you. He's going to trap you, put you in prison. There's murders going on. People are being slaughtered. He's breathing in this environment. This is not a good scene. And God comes to you and he says, Hey, listen, I'm going to send the dude, the bad dude to your house. Or I want you to go to his house. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. I don't think that's my particular job. As surely as God... In his sovereignty, he had picked and called Saul of Tarsus. He had also picked and called these two other men, Ananias and Judas on Straight Street, to use them in their life for this redemptive purpose. And they're recorded here. So your name may not be recorded in the big headlights of the scriptures, but I tell you, if you're obedient to the small things that God has for you, you are remembered through eternity. So stay good on what that calling is. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Two things. The idea that we are a chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus is I don't know about you, but if Jesus walked in those doors here this morning, and we're like, oh, my God, that's Jesus in the And Jesus walked up to you, and you'd been a follower of Jesus for a number of years. Blessed are those who have seen and not believed. All right, Jesus said, you're one of those category. I've not seen, but yet I've believed. I've followed him. He comes. He's come. And he picks you, and he says, I have chosen you as an instrument of my work would there be part of you, part of you, like, oh, my goodness, what's it going to tell? Can I live up to it? But there's another part of you who's like, really? You picked me? Remember how you get sort of divided up for playing on sports teams or something, and it's like, okay, here's two people they're going to pick. I pick you. I pick you. And isn't it cool to go first? Because it's a big downer to go last. Oh, yeah, come on. We'll take him, too, I guess. Right? But Jesus comes in and he picks each of us first because he has a unique place and purpose for us to fulfill his will. And so this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name. The awakening church, fully alive in Christ and to his mission. You will not be fully alive in Christ until you discover afresh every day, every week, that you have been chosen to be an instrument to carry his name, to be on mission with him during the course of a week. Wow, he picks us. He picks us. Frail and broken as we are. If he picks someone like Paul, then he could pick someone like me. And then look where he sends him to. He says he's got really three categories there. To the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. Not only was Paul a Jew who had Roman citizenship, but he also spoke Greek. He was of the Greek culture, and he could do this cross-cultural thing really well. And so here Jesus takes Saul of Tarsus, renames him Paul, and he sends him to the Gentile world. The Gentiles are anybody who are not a Jew. That's the category. So the uttermost part of the world. In Acts 9, we see the fulfillment of what the Acts 1-8 thing was. You will be my witnesses in Jew- Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. We mentioned last week on Great Commission Sunday about how this began to happen and move out after stoning of Stephen, right, and the persecution of the church. God said, get out of here. Go, go, go to the nations. Go to the other people groups!" And so you find people like Philip in a city in Samaria and that kind of thing. And so here's Jesus seeing to it that the church was fulfilling his command to be witnesses into all these parts. And so Acts 9 continues this, but Acts 9 starts to seed. It seeds the individual who will pull point on the mission to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's why I think, you know, I'm indeed grateful to Paul for what he did because I am a result of his missionary efforts going back 2,000 years ago. But not only the Gentiles, he was going to go before kings. Man, you can, you can go through the book of Acts and see where Paul is taken before, uh, before kings and before uh, uh, rulers over territories. He ended up even before the emperor himself when he was sent to Rome, we believe. He knew he was going to be speaking to people in authority. And then it says to the people of Israel, he always wanted to help redeem his people. That's why he was such a zealot for God as a Pharisee. But. That was third. Then there's the verse that I wish wasn't here. Verse 16 of Acts 9. Jesus. I pick you. Great. I pick you to be my chosen person. To carry my chosen name. But just. just Got to let you know something here. I will show him, he says to Ananias, how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. The one who brought that persecution, who was such a bad dude. God changed his life. There was transformation that happened. And then he was sent out to love other people. But he himself then would be hated. And he would suffer much. Paul didn't get to pick that. Jesus knew that if you're going to love, you're going to end up suffering. Do you see that true in your life? You can choose not to love. You can bunk yourself away and not really like people, be engaged with people, care for people, nurture people. And you can live in your own little isolated world. But the moment you step out of that world and you choose to love people, love people in the name of Jesus, love people through what God's work is in your own heart, whatever it may be. You risk the opportunity to suffer because of that love that you're reaching out with, especially in that world, as the gospel was spreading through the the unknown regions because there was opposition. And Paul has tons of stories throughout his writings about his suffering. But Jesus predicted it. At the moment that he was converted. You will suffer. So as much as I want to encourage you about Jesus picking you. And heading out there today. I also know that I need to remind us. if We're followers of Jesus Christ today. That we will suffer. Because that suffering is not just for Paul. It's for anyone who chooses to love in the name of Christ. When suffering comes. As bizarre as it may sound. We have to endear ourselves to it. We may be unjustly accused. We may have people throw some knives in our back. We may go without things that we really would like to have in life that would be provisions to make life easier. But that's not our choice. It's never our choice. You see, there was a huge thing happening here. And that was that this strong, very competent man, when he was struck blind by the light of Jesus Christ, he was struck down in a place of surrender. When was Paul actually converted? You ever ask yourself that question? Well, probably between verse 5 and 6 of Acts 9. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment... He knew who this Jesus was. Who are you? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. All he knew that he was pushing back against, all he thought was a lie, was really the truth. And somewhere in that moment, while he was a broken man, there was confession, there was contrition. For three days, he was blinded. Now, you know, the three days you're blinded. Don't you think in terms of it being blinded, you would see darkness, right? He was blinded by a light. In fact, there's all kinds of, you know, there's different stories out there. People have that don't want to believe the story. He was epileptic and he had a seizure and then he thought he heard voices or, you know, it was close to this valley, rainy season, you know, Damascus. He got struck by a bolt of lightning or whatever. Well, you probe into that and go, Really? As Spurgeon said, may we all have such epilepsy, if that's true, you know. <laughs> Gosh. And the lightning bolt idea, that may describe, you know, why the flash of light, you know, but it doesn't describe the other things and satisfy. it. But Jesus appeared to him in this brightness. And I believe it's like when you look at the sun too long and then you look away, what do you see? You see this real red you know, this dot in your eyes. It was burned into you. I don't know that his his blindness was a blindness of darkness. It was probably a, it was probably a blindness of light. And for three days he's blinded with this light image in his face of Jesus. But praise God, when he was blinded and struck down, he chose to yield and consecrate himself to God. Question. Have you had an experience that changes the course of direction in your life and has that experience been one where Jesus, maybe not as a blinding light, but maybe as a still small voice, maybe through the circumstances of what's happening, begins to speak to you, speaks to you from the word, speaks to you from a godly friend, that Jesus has spoken to you and have you surrendered or have you defiantly gone on your way. Paul surrendered. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. he got up, and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. It was filled with the Holy Spirit. There were no tongues of fire there. It's not described that way. But if you choose to be a follower of Jesus, His Spirit will come and will fill you and begin to use you. He got up and he was baptized. Baptized. You know? Could you believe it? Everybody's like flipping out about this Saul of Tarsus. Oh, oh! He's being baptized because baptized to be baptized was a was an outer sign. That you were a part of a group. So he now was becoming a part of the way. Jesus had struck him on the way to Damascus. And he became a part of the way. Because that was Jesus' way of calling him. And he chooses Paul. Paul yields his life to him. After Jesus, what? He took him out of Jerusalem, which, I, you know, why didn't Jesus do it back in Jerusalem? No, because Jesus wanted him to know he was going to be a disciple, an apostle to the Gentiles. So let's take him outside of Jerusalem. This is your new territory. This is your new ground, Damascus. And furthermore, and he chose then to be baptized and identified with the very people that he was marching on his way to Damascus to take captive back into Jerusalem and to snuff out this Jesus the Nazarene movement. We're going to have a baptism at the end of this series, June 21. A handful have already spoken to me that they would like to be baptized. I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, for whatever reason, maybe it wasn't a part of your tradition growing up, maybe you were just hesitant to do it, but if you've never been baptized and you are someone who wants to follow Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to be baptized on June 21st. Just write baptism on the back of your card or uh, there's a place to mark baptism on the front of it. I'll be in touch with you. We're going to have a baptism at the end of this series. Isn't that cool? Just like here's Paul. You know He's part of a new believer to be baptized. Jesus is actively still calling people to himself today through his spirit. And that's what... These ages are about him gathering a people of his very own, a people of the way that are marked to be different into the eons of eternity will be marked to be different. Why? How is that possible as human beings? It's not possible as human beings because we are fallen, broken, sinful people that are double minded, very self-centered. And we're just really worried about how to get to next week right now. But when Jesus invades your life, he begins to reorder and change your heart to be endeared towards the thing of his heart. And these are different kinds of people. Three questions. Have you had a Damascus Road experience? I'm not talking about the lights and the branding and the blindness of that. I'm talking about have you had the personableness of Jesus come to you and say, I want you to be a follower of me. I've chosen you. If you could say this morning, well, you know, to be honest, Carrie, I don't. You know, this is a nice story about this Paul guy and Acts and all that's going on. It's sort of sort of amazing story, but God's just really distant to me. If there is even a God, I believe if you make it your choice to seek out the God that may or may not exist, and you make it your choice to discover who Jesus Christ is whether through the writing of Scripture, interacting with those who are followers of Christ, there's multiple ways to begin to discover who Jesus is. If you make the choice to seek him, he will reveal himself to you. He's not someone who picks a few and discards the others. Today is the day of salvation. God desires that all would be saved. And if you've never been saved and had a Damascus Road experience where you've seen Jesus or at least felt him or understood his truth and surrendered to him, whether it's a big moment or just a small, simple crossing, a line of faith, active prayer, I don't know, then I I beg of you, I really do as a pastor, I beg of you to make it a top priority in your life to seek God out and to seek to discover who Jesus is. Because you too can be met by him. Have you had a Damascus Road experience? Secondly, has the resurrected Jesus changed the course of direction in your life? The Apostle Paul went into Damascus. He stayed in Damascus. He actually had three years in Asia Minor where God instructed him. He began to teach in the synagogues. His whole trajectory of life was changed after meeting the resurrected of Jesus. Can I tell you something I'm bothered by? I am bothered by people who say that they are Jesus followers, that they're Christians, but there's no evident change of trajectory in their life because of the lordship of the one who supposedly saved them. And it's not me to ever question somebody's faith. That's in the hands of God and he knows, but I will ask you. If your life has not been changed and the agenda of your life changed, Because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, then has it been that you've yielded to the lordship of Jesus, or have you just accepted him in as just one more thing for maybe a sense of fire insurance or something about eternity? When you meet Jesus as the resurrected Jesus, he is calling you to lordship. Paul was no longer calling the shots after Acts 9. He was calling men, making decisions. From that moment on, Jesus said, you go into Damascus and I'm going to tell you what to do. You just sit there in your blindness because I'm now in charge. Amen. Friends, that may sound a little harsh to you. And it's like, do I want to follow a God like that? But friends, he has our perfect, his perfect will in mind for us in our lives. And I say, yes, yes. When I was 15 years old and I yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it was because of this very point I finally realized that if I was choosing what was best for my life, I could only come up with second best because he had the ultimate best. Yes, I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thus the question, has the resurrected Jesus changed the course of direction in your life? And if he hasn't, then I would ask you, is he the Lord of your life? As it's said, he's either the Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. No Lord is an oxymoron. You cannot say that. And then my third question is this. Are you surrendering to Christ as Lord for his purposes in this world? He has a plan. He has a purpose. I want you to dwell on what the Spirit is speaking to you now about. In what you need to do with your life. Here on this Memorial Day weekend. We honor those who have given their lives. For our freedom. On this Memorial Day Sunday. I want you to honor the one. Who gave his life. For your salvation. To set you free. Put you on a trajectory to be used by him. To be his witness. Even to the uttermost parts of the world. Watch this video and these words entitled reverse poem i find it interesting going one way changing and turning and going another